This is episode 245 of Alohomora for May 12th, 2018. And welcome to another episode of Alohomora, MuggleNet.com's global re 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 read of <laughs> of the Harry Potter series. I'm Allison Sigurd. I'm Beth Warsaw. And I'm Michael Harley. And our guest today uh, is one of our longtime listeners who we had the pleasure of meeting in person uh, last year at MuggleNet Live on September 1st. Emily. Please introduce yourselves to our listeners. Say hi. Hi, guys. And tell them a little bit about yourself, your uh, Hogwarts house, your wand, uh, how you got into Harry Potter. Tell us a little bit about you. Sure. So I have a pretty standard story, I think, of getting into the series. Um, I'm definitely part of the Harry Potter generation. So I started reading the books in fourth grade. Um, I was adamantly opposed to them. I thought anything that could be as popular as Harry Potter had to be really stupid. And so I resisted for a long time, but fortunately one of my classmates persuaded me to pick up Sorcerer's Stone, and ten years later I was sitting in my apartment having an identity crisis, worrying that my Pottermore sorting was not going to put me in Ravenclaw as I had identified with my whole life. Um, but fortunately I was put in Ravenclaw, so I am a Ravenclaw. <laughs> um, Yay. And my wand is Rowan and Dragon Heartstring, 11 and a half inches. And I really, really love my wand. Rowan is good for protective and defensive spells, and it's um, only been given to the pure of heart. It has never been given to a dark wizard. So I think that's really nice. <laughs> Wonderful. And yeah, you you were with us at, at uh, MuggleNet Live on September 1st. That's not something many of our guest hosts get to say. Can you tell them a little bit about how that experience was? It was amazing. So I um, am living in Florida currently, originally from Michigan, and I'm just here for a couple years doing a fellowship. And when I saw that MuggleNet Live was going to be happening, I knew I would have no better chance any other time in my life to take advantage of something like that. And it was just so special to not only be in the park with a bunch of other super fans, which is kind of my dream. I kind of wish they made people take like a trivia test before letting them into Diagon Alley. <laughs> um, so to have people there that were all in costume and that I knew were as big of diehards as I was was really special. And then on top of it, to have it be September 1st and to actually like get to ride the Hogwarts Express on September 1st, it was really incredible. So thank you guys so much for, for hosting such a great event. Oh, thank yay. I'm so glad you had yay. fun. Yeah, no, it was. I love hearing about how much fun people. Had. I know because yeah. it was fun for us, but it was also crazy for us. So I love hearing people be like, "Oh my gosh, it was so awesome!" And I was like, "Yes, we did something right." I know. I wish I had more people to talk about it with because, like, trying to explain this to people in my regular life, they don't care. So it was really excellent, and I would love to gush about it all day. Oh well, we're so glad to hear that. We're really glad you enjoyed it, Emily, and that you joined us for it because it was really a treat to meet listeners uh, of the show in person. It was really, really cool to have y'all there. So, and we're so glad this is your first Alohomora episode. Yes. So, thank you for joining us for this uh, very uh, hefty episode this week, yeah. listeners. It's it, it, this isn't the light stuff. <laughs> this is. We are looking at Deathly Hallows. We are going back to chapter 36, The Flaw in the Plan. 
Yeah, that plan. Like, the plan. So, <laughs> get ready for, you know, some deep discussion that kind of ties all the way back in to the previous Harry Potters. So, here we go. But make sure to read that before listening to the episode. Oh, and also, if you uh, if you uh, want, you can take a look at our archive. Let me see. Does anybody remember off the top it's of their episode, head? It's episode, yes. I put it in the notes because I listened to part of it today. Uh, it's episode 187. 187. And that's me, Rosie Cat, and Claire. Awesome. So, yes, make sure and listen to that episode before listening to this one, too, if you want to get a lot of extra information um, and extra opinions from some hosts that uh, were on that episode. And if you missed Michael's wonderful reading at MuggleNet Live, or even if you didn't miss it and you just want more of it, <laughs> Michael <laughs> read this chapter very, very recently. Um, that is over on our YouTube. Um, and I would highly, highly recommend going over to listen to it because I listened to it earlier today and the part where Harry goes... Uh, and talks to Dumbledore at the end, I was tearing up because of Michael's reading of it. And so you should go enjoy that. I will second that. I definitely got teary at a few different parts when I was listening to the reading. I was, oh. like, I was like, oh, what's happening to me? <laughs> well, thank you, ladies. No, that was a real honor to do that. That was for um, MuggleNet for the Battle of Hogwarts uh, on um, May, well, Second, first, depending on where you were in the world, um, did a live... Uh, 20th anniversary. Yeah, live posts of, of, of the events of the Battle of Hogwarts 20 years later. So at, at the moment that these things happened during the battle, we were doing posts, including readings of the book, uh, fan art, polls, all kinds of cool stuff, clips from the movies, and some of those readings, yes, you can actually find online, including at our YouTube page. So real quick before we get into talking about this chapter more, I want to give a sh huge shout out to David Reynard for sponsoring us on Patreon. Thank you, David. We thank you, very David. much appreciate you. Yay! Thank you. Um, and you too can become a sponsor for as little as $1 a month. Uh, rewards include access to our private Facebook group, Dumbledore's Office. That's at the $2 level, and we have a ton of fun in there, you guys. Uh, so come join us in that group. Yeah, it's funny that uh, th that Emily mentioned that her wand is Rowan, because that made me think of the yes. character Rowan in <laughs> Harry Potter Mystery at Hogwarts game, which we are having quite a discussion about in Dumbledore's office. So if you want to get in on that, that's the place to go. <laughs> Let's put it this way. Because of everyone's reviews, I have not downloaded it nor played it. And probably won't. Yeah, yeah when is the I'm, Hogwarts mystery episode happening? I'm pretty I sure I'm, I'm timing out of something that I'm supposed to be doing as we speak. So <laughs> There... There, there, there has been discussion and, and requests for a video game episode, so the Hogwarts mystery will almost certainly be highlighted in that. <laughs> in, in, you know, a form or another. <laughs> yes. They're mixed reviews, guys. Mixed reviews. Not all <laughs> negative. Some positive. Um, so, uh, speaking of video games, I think maybe some video game stuff is coming to Patreon one day. One day. It's so it's so all I need to do now. I I have 
my beautiful, way too much money spent Alienware computer that I can finally edit video on. Yay! And thanks to your funds, listeners, I will be able to get a video, some video editing software that I can properly use to do this so that we can finally get you some awesome video gaming uh, Let's Plays that you will be able to watch and enjoy. I have been so on the edge coming. of my seat for so long, I have so many muscles now. It, it is <laughs> ridiculous how long and how long this has been coming. But yes, well, now that I have a computer that's powerful enough to handle that much editing and that much video, uh, yes, can be done, will be done, coming your way. Also, uh, at the $5 level, um, we have decals of the Alohomora logo, which I only recently got and have on my laptop and absolutely love. Um, we also have at the $15 level a private reading from Michael with a chapter of your choice. Um, and at the $25 level, a vintage Alohomora t-shirt and a Skype chat with the host of your choosing. Additionally, Allison and I are going to be recording some fanfic soon. Yes. I just today <laughs> went through my computer and pulled up some options. So oh, that good. is happening very, very soon. Good, oh good gosh, stuff. So much I know I have time now too, so it'll. <laughs> <laughs> so we, get if you ready. missed our video, we uh, we rehearsed it in the middle of Disneyland, and it was quite the experience. <laughs> <laughs> we were bored waiting for a show to start, and we started sharing fanfic that we had written at various times in our lives. And we looked at each other, and we were like, oh, "We need to record these." <laughs> It was a great time. <laughs> That's going to be very... Oh, man, I'm looking forward to that. Yep. Yep. <clears throat> so. And also to those listeners, by the way, who uh, have gone in on the $15 level, uh, I have sent you emails uh, to do readings, and uh, I will contact you again because I would really love to do those private readings with you. So make sure and check your email if you have gone in for the $15 level on our Patreon because I am ready to read to you. Yay! So all of those perks and more to come can be found at patreon.com slash alohomora. And you can go over there to see your current perks or to become a sponsor. And before we get into the chapter discussion today, we just want to do a few quick shout out maximas from some comments that you guys left on a previous episode. We are looking back at episode 243, which was another chapter revisit. This was chapter 22 of Half-Blood Prince. Uh, and uh, we wanted to highlight just a few comments, and I thought it would be very appropriate since Emily is here, and Emily <laughs> left a great comment. Emily, would you like to read your comment aloud that you left for us about Felix Felicis? Because I really I would enjoyed love this to. comment. Yay! Yeah. So I said the question of whether or not Felix has a moral compass is an interesting one, and I think a lot of the points raised in episode 239 regarding the questionable legality of amortentia slash love potions can apply here. We do know that the potion is, quote, desperately tricky to make and disastrous to get wrong, which likely explains why people aren't just downing it all the time in daily life. I wonder, though, how much of the quote-unquote luck that comes from drinking Felix Felicis can be attributed to a placebo effect. Being that this is the wizarding world, I'm sure there's some true element of magic to its efficacy. However, in this chapter, Ron reminisces about what it felt like to take the potion when, at this point, even he knows he didn't actually take any. Hermione says as much, to which Ron replies, Yeah, but I thought I had, didn't I? Same difference, really. 
The placebo effect is definitely a real phenomenon, and I've also read that self-identifying lucky people don't necessarily have more fortuitous events happen to them, but rather they have a greater sense of optimism and general positive outlook compared to unlucky people. So I wonder if part of Felix's power is just making the drinkers shift their worldview a little bit, so that they're seeing their surroundings through a more positive lens, at least temporarily. Or maybe Felix Felicis is just coffee, because I know when I drink coffee, I feel an exhilarating sense of infinite opportunity. <laughs> I like this. Um, when you first started reading this comment, I was a little bit skeptical. And then toward the end, I was like, you know, I can buy that. Um, I think that, you know, positivity and confidence are w way too understated. Um, I think that those are, those are kind of a big deal. And, mm -hmm. um, and it would be really cool if that's all that Felix did. I bet it's kind of a combo. I bet there's a little bit of magic to it, but I bet a lot of it is psychological also. Oh, for sure. I really enjoyed your, the discussion on this on the last episode because we went onto this in the first, the first time we examined, uh, Half-Blood Prince, uh, chapter 22. And so this was nice to hear this discussion in full again. And I really like that there's still debate. Um, there was a lot, there were a lot of comments on what Felix Felicis is actually doing. And I kind of like that there's no definite, uh, answer. I think Rowling in some ways intentionally leaves it up to us to, to discern for ourselves what it's doing. Um, but I do like, I like how you pointed out in your comment, Emily, the specific example that when Hermione's like, you didn't even drink it. And Ron's just like, yeah, but I thought I did. And that's all that matters. And, <laughs> <laughs> and that's just funny. That like, and that's how he justifies it. And everybody's like, yeah, sure. Ron basically took Felix Felicis. Nobody <laughs> questions that anymore. <laughs> so I really like that, that idea that maybe it's just giving a boost to things that are already there. Am I, like, I think of it as... Um, there are certain video games where you have multiple choices and depending on how many, like, you know, points you have or like you know, of, of a certain trait, you can eliminate the choices that are wrong or narrow mm -hmm. it down so mm -hmm. you get the right one. And I feel like to me, that's what Felix Felicis does. It just highlights the best path almost um, yeah. out of multiple opportunities. But I do like the idea that it maybe is just like, yep, I think I'm great. So I'm great. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it could, it could also be, you know, it, Harry might have had the thought to go down to Hogwarts, uh, Hogwarts, go down to Hagrid's, um, and ordinary Harry would have been like, nah, uh, that's not what I need to be doing right now. Whereas Felicis Harry is like, yeah, do that. Yeah, I like that. I like that idea too. That it's just, it's just that. It's it's just the Felix Felicis that's already giving him. Somebody said in another comment, I think that it's just like giving him a nudge to do something that he wouldn't normally have done other or like he would have done, but he would have talked himself out of it. Mm -hmm. um, so, but we had some other great comments as well. Um, and we're not going to go too deep into them. I'm just going to kind of highlight uh, uh, who, who left them and to the general gist of the comments. But as always, we had great comments from Diskid, um, not that kid, Diskid have to say it, um, who was also at MuggleNet Live and was a pleasure to meet. Um, but uh, Diskid actually posited a great theory that Tom Riddle may have actually covered um, Slughorn's pineapple with, or had, had used Felix Felicis with um, with that to, or actually used used uh, used it on himself during that scene with the pineapple. Somebody else suggested that he, he covered the pineapple in um, Veritaserum. 
Um, <laughs> Ooh. But yeah, somebody suggested. That, but just wow. Yeah, just kid suggested that uh, he used he used Felix Felicis the night that he got the information out of Slughorn, um, but also kind of backtracked and thought thought that maybe Riddle is a little too prideful to use something like Felicis and would take much more pride in his own skill and ability to get things out of people without magic. Um, so I really enjoyed that comment, and that kind of started a lively discussion in the comments. Uh, we also had a great jo- uh, a great comment from Davy B Jones nine nine nine, another uh, listener who was at MuggleNet Live, uh, and I have to note Davy B Jones left a few comments, and when one of them uh, he was typing Felix Felicis, and he typed out Felix Felicia, and everybody in the comments <laughs> was like, "This is the best by Felicia." <laughs> 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 so that's I, I think we need to put that on a shirt or something because I, really, <laughs> I like that um, Felix but, Felicia <laughs> <laughs> but uh, uh, Davy B. Jones uh, actually noted in uh, that uh, there was discussion about why Slughorn was hiding in the episode from Voldemort and if that was really even necessary and uh, he actually hunted down an excerpt from the uh, one of the Pottermore short stories titled um, "From Hogwarts," uh, uh, short stories from Hogwarts of power, politics, and pesky, pesky poltergeists. Um, and in that section, it does explain that why Slughorn hid from Voldemort, um, thinking that essentially that uh, Voldemort was going to uh, kill him because he was one of the few people who knew what he had done and what could actually take him down. Um, which apparently didn't end up being the case. He just employed him at Hogwarts, continued his employment. Um, but uh, it was nice to know that little piece of information that comes from uh, one of those more obscure canon sources that has been buried by time that nobody is actively <laughs> seeking out anymore. Um, and uh, we also had a great comment from Griffin Puff Girl, which was uh, chopped up into three long parts about why Slughorn is not a Death Eater. It was a really great comment. It was just a little too long to even get into it. But uh, listeners, you can go examine all of these amazing comments over at our website, alohomorepodcast.com. Uh, just because the episode is over doesn't mean the discussion is. Uh, so shout out Maxima to all of you <coughs> wonderful listeners for contributing what you did. Thank you very much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. And now we'll we'll jump into the... <laughs> The big kahuna itself. Um, (laughs) Into our chapter for this week, which is The Flaw in the Plan, Deathly Hallows, Chapter 36. Three turns should do it. Chapter Revisit. Chapter 36. The Flaw in the Plan. I guess summary-wise, I'll just borrow from the jacket cover of the American edition. We now present the final chapter in the seven-part saga of Harry Potter. Oh! Oh. (laughs) Clever girl. I just want everybody to know I did that by memory, too. I just just needed everyone to know that. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I don't even own that version of Deathly Hallows. I just have a British version of Deathly Hallows. So you don't own the U.S. edition of Deathly Hallows? No, my parents do. So it's uh, the one I originally read. But um, 
The only one I have at this time is, British is my British edition. So. Nice, nice. Well, it's yes. it's worth anyway. mentioning that we have hit a major milestone anniversary of this event, correct? Yes, 20 years. Blah. 20 years since the Battle of Hogwarts. That's crazy. That's crazy. That is crazy. And this is, this is it's uh, 11 years since the book was published about, right? It will be this year. Which is also crazy. Yes, yeah, that's, yeah. this summer. That's yeah. disgusting. <laughs> I can't believe it's been that long. I still, for some reason, I still, whenever I think about the series, like six and seven feel so new to me still. Yes. <laughs> yeah, me too. I'm like, ooh, they're new. But I'm like, it's been over a decade. I also feel like I should have recovered more from some of the deaths that happen yes. in the seventh book. And I'm like, not there. <laughs> nope. Nope. <laughs> and it's like even even in chapter even in chapters where the deaths don't actually happen, they're just talking about them. And I read them totally out of context. I'm like <gasps> I don't know why it affects me so You're much. You're gonna die. <laughs> Never mind. I was gonna say something, but Beth hasn't seen Infinity War yet, mm. so I won't. No, oh, whoa. <laughs> Thanos demands your silence. Anyway. Yes. I'm happy to give it there. Um, <laughs> but let's let's start. I feel like I bring this up every time we talk about Deathly Hallows, but I just want to start with the writing craft in this book. Mm. I think I think this is her best writing in this series. It's so good. For sure. It's so good. Just the craft itself is gorgeous. Oh my gosh. Um this chapter starts with a really like classic almost textbook example of what we call exploding a moment which she does a lot in this book actually especially here near the end where it's it's a very like small moment but she just pinpoints every single tiny little like sensory detail and it just makes it so much bigger so it starts um that's a cool term right i've never Harry... heard that term exploding a moment yeah that's neat um Harry is waking up in the forest after King's Cross, um, after that experience. And it's honestly a whole paragraph just talking about, like, the feeling of, like, lying on the ground and, like, feeling his glasses have come off and, like, trying not to breathe and trying not to make himself noticed. And... And then he starts hearing what's going on around him. And uh, Emily, you had something about this one, too. Yeah, I, when I was rereading this, I just thought it was so impressive, again, from a writing standpoint, how much information we get, even though Harry's eyes are shut for, like, the whole beginning part of this chapter. You know, as, when you're writing, a lot of the times, especially in the third person like this, you're seeing we're seeing the story through Harry's eyes, but his eyes are shut, and yet she's still able to um, invoke a lot of his other senses and you know he gets these moments where he'll open his eyes in millimeters so we can at least have a quick glimpse of what's going on but it's just really impressive um, how Joe relies on the other senses to set the scene and you still really feel like you're immersed in the world and you know what's going on even without the benefit of sight. So I just had this incredible visual in my mind of J.K. Rowling actually trying to 
write this chapter and being in her hotel room and like actually laying on the ground with like <laughs> her glasses askew and like putting a pillow underneath her like the invisibility cloak and like, like a pen down her shirt for the lunch. yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's amazing now this i i think that's a great... i bet it happened or something happened like i bet she like sat for a while with her eyes closed at least to write this Mm -hmm. chapter because i think it's such a great point what emily pointed out with the eyes closed because uh this comes such a like this is so far removed from the writing that she started the writing style she started with in sorcerer's Mm -hmm. stone because this this is by deathly hallows we are there there are rare chapters like the first one where we are not in Harry's perspective, but for most of it, we are seeing things through Harry's eyes. And in Sorcerer's Stone, she will frequently allow herself to to break um, mm-hmm. from Harry's um, perspective and do it and, and write more as a omniscient narrator. Um, and she pretty much never does that in, in Deathly Hallows. So it's and and then to add this extra layered challenge of and his eyes are closed like that must have been I'm sure she did that as a in a way as a challenge to herself because it really does I think it lends to what you were talking about Allison with the idea of exploding a moment she has to do that because without that what do you what can you do to get yeah. across to the reader the, what, what's going on here. One of my favorite ways she gives him a moment to look, though, is when it's a little bit later in the chapter. She says he, like, is looking through his eyelashes. And I'm pretty sure the first time I read that, I sat there for a while and I was like, can you do that? Like, how much can I see if I just try and look through my eyelashes? (laughs) But just, like, it's beautiful. It's absolutely exquisite. It's, oh my gosh. I love the writing in this book. I was... Oh, I was reading Sorcerer's Stone uh, earlier this week, and I would encourage all of our listeners to do that occasionally, to juxtapose the beginning of the series and the end of the series, because her writing at the beginning is by no means bad, but it is so apparent the growth in her writing when you read those yeah. two books back to back. Yeah, and the tone is very well, different. And, like the first book yeah, is, sure. you know, our our golden ma- introduction to this magical world, and then you know, by book seven, it's full out war, and you can definitely see a difference just in the tone of of the stories in book one to book seven. Absolutely, and that hyper awareness yeah. of her audience. Uh, you know, a, a ten and eleven year old reader is not going to read Deathly Hallows the same way that a seventeen eighteen year old would and since there was there did seem to be this intent to grow the books with her audience uh it's it's uh, it, it's very evident when you when you do juxtapose sorcerer's stone with deathly hallows but um as harry starts waking up he starts to realize that it seems voldemort has also fallen down during this time and i don't want to talk about this tons because I know what everybody else is going to say. But um, <laughs> there's this line. You haven't even seen it yet, Michael. You can't even talk. Oh, my like, God. You can't talk to me like that when I spent so much money on those tickets. I'm kidding. I'm kidding. We're all, we're all hoping um, that you weren't lying to us, Allison, because I think we all got tickets on your recommendation. <laughs> you're you're going to love it. Anyway, um, I'm excited to see it again. Like, I'm counting days. But anyway... Um, 
So the line is, it was Bellatrix's voice, and she spoke as if to a lover. And I, I went back and listened to last the the last episode we talked about this chapter, episode 187, and I think at that time none of us had seen Cursed Child yet. I don't think. I don't think so. No. Uh, if uh, you went back to the episode where we originally talked about this chapter... Yes. Oh, yeah, no, I don't think, I don't think so. I didn't check the timeline, but I think none of us had, because none of us brought it up either. <laughs> and Why we would would've. we? <laughs> well, I, I think it's, a, it's, obviously it's a thing I think that's fueled a lot of fanfic and then made a lot of people upset, but I, I'm going to go out there for my play again. It's really unusual for Rowling to say anything like this, I think. Um, this seems like a really strange phrase for her to use. Um, Maybe it's because, because the Harry doesn't... Potter books are so chaste with their romances. <laughs> well, yeah. And, like, she just doesn't focus on that, you know? Mm. And so to have that specific phrase, I think... I think it says something significant. I don't know, though. I think we have kind of, like, known this characteristic of Bellatrix for a while because I've heard that, you know, Helena Bonham Carter was given the direction that that's sort of how she should behave towards Voldemort and was actually told to tone it down because she was just too into the lover aspect of things. And I think it stems more... Sorry, I just, I'm picturing a very Potter musical where at the end, like, Ron and Hermione at the end of a very Potter musical when they like start making out, but it's really awkward. But I think Bellatrix's anyone, okay. um, behavior stems more from kind of her insane devotion to Voldemort. And I never get the impression that it was reciprocated. No. Yeah. I think, and there, there were dis- there's been a lot of discussion about that in the fandom that it wasn't. And, you know, again, of course, depending on how you take Cursed Child, and and still even with Cursed Child, you know, having having consensual sex does not mean that you are necessarily in a romantic relationship that goes yes. both ways. Um, and we also don't know what actually happened to make Delphi Delphi. It could have yes. been very magical and and cold and distant and. I don't like to think about it too. Yeah, hard. no, I'm <laughs> I'm a little disturbed at how much the fandom has had to bend backwards to make <laughs> that work in their heads, like the most horrific things that they have come up with um, <laughs> to make that work. And I'm just like, oh man, guys, that is just I didn't even really want to talk about this at all. Um, <laughs> but yeah, no, I I've always seen it because Voldemort is just so. <laughs> uninterested in that aspect as a whole. Like, not just with Bellatrix, but with pretty much anyone, it would seem. So, that's not really a focus to him. So, yeah, I think this is all... I still read it that this is all one-sided on Bellatrix's part. Oh, yeah. No, I do too. But... I... It caught my eye this time. It is, um, yeah, I think you're right that it is unusual, but I... I'd say it's unusual in that, like I said, romantic relationships in Harry Potter are mostly off the page and not discussed of in much this way. Like, I think the most they get touched on like this is Half-Blood Prince. 
Um, mm-hmm. So, and that's, it's, I'd say different because it's, it's teens versus adults. Like adult romance in Harry Potter is not really something we see in detail. I was going to say pretty much the only one we know about is Tonks and Remus. And it's just like, oh, hey, and we got married. Well, and Bill <laughs> and Fleur, right? Oh, that's true. And Bill and Fleur. All yeah. of those are pretty much off the page. For sure. Yeah. Like, yeah. As far as the substance of those relationships, yeah, they're not on the page. That's why I think it's also kind of unusual that we're getting to see adult Harry Potter relationships and Fantastic Beasts. So, yeah, I think that's kind of our first proper example of a relationship that like that. Yeah. Speaking of Bellatrix, though, we now move to her sister, um, who betrays Voldemort, and it, it hit me this time. He doesn't call her by name, and I wondered if he even knew her name. Am I forgetting? He, Does he ever call he, her by he name? He must know her name. He was staying in her house for how long? <laughs> but does does he like just not care? Enough? It might be that he just doesn't care and he's just like you whoever I don't care who goes to check and she was just close and he pointed but I feel like he has to know what she's called. I also well, imagine he he seems kind of disoriented at this point. That's um true. I wonder if he's not really you know able to comprehend the entire situation. Oh, that's a good point. Also, yeah, we don't Narcissa's... know what it was like for him when he was unconscious. Well, I haven't we heard from Rowling that uh when he was unconscious he was he was the creepy baby Voldemort? That's like, what I, I, I don't think we've had that confirmed. Oh, I'm pretty sure she um, said that somewhere. I'll have to find it. But Because we we talked about it on the last episode on one eighty seven, and I think someone had looked it up and no one could find confirmation about that well that would certainly be disorienting if you were just waking up from that yes <laughs> yes um, um but i was gonna say too that the um the the thing too with narcissus is that she's not a branded death eater either oh really so, yes. that's true yeah so she's probably not necessarily on like his list of people to I don't know, memorize the names of or care about much. Like yeah, that's true. He probably he I, I he has to know about her enough because like Emily said, he lived in her house and um he's so close with close with Lucius that I think Bella or Narcissa could have easily been, you know, some kind of collateral in his eyes. Um And Draco too, like Yeah. You, know, you wouldn't know two thirds of that family and have no idea who the matriarch was. Yeah. And and she, but you know, also at the same simultaneously, she does seem to have enough uh, anonymity that she can slip away, you know, uh, uh, past Death Eater knowledge to go talk to Snape about, you know, getting Draco out of the deal in Half Blood. So, yeah, I'd, I'd say she's kind of low on the totem pole for Voldemort's, you know, interest. Okay. We also, we mentioned, this was an interesting discussion. I keep going back to this episode. It was a really good episode. Um, 187. uh, We talked about if she's expendable. And Rosie brought up how this kind of shows us 
how Voldemort views women in general and how they just, in his view, worldview, they just follow orders and do what they're told and don't really exist for anything else. Um, so that's a fascinating discussion to go back and, and listen to as well, listeners. Um, yeah, Voldemort is big into uh, the patriarchy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, another quick one, just I don't know if we've gotten any more information on this because we couldn't settle on an answer, was how the Cruciatus curse fails to work um, on Harry anybody have any better answers than what we could think of where I mean we brought up on the last one is it something to do with Harry's ability to overcome the uh, imperious curse does it have something to do with the fact that Harry and Voldemort share blood from the uh, little Hangleton graveyard I think uh, no and no on both of those um, because with the imperious curse it it has been described as very intentional when Harry has been able to do it previously, where he has to focus on it and he knows what's happening and he does it on purpose. Um, whereas in this case, he is expecting to feel pain and then he doesn't. And he's like, huh, interesting. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then with the sharing of blood, I, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that Voldemort has tortured Harry since they began sharing blood. And Harry has felt pain in that oh, instance. Oh yeah. So, yeah. so yeah, I'm I'm coming up also with no answers. <laughs> I think part of it might have to do with the fact that at this point Voldemort is using the Elder Wand, but we know that he's not the true master of it. And since Harry, or I guess Harry is not the true master of it either. No, yes, he is because okay, it gets very confusing. <laughs> so Harry is the true master of it. So maybe because don't worry, we're getting there <laughs> <laughs> because. The wand knows that Harry's his true master. That could also contribute to why it's not working the way it's supposed to. And we see several instances of this chapter of Voldemort's magic not working the way that it's supposed to, and certainly not how we'd expect for someone as powerful as him. I think it's a combo of the Elder Wand not wanting to hurt its master, mm-hmm. yeah, and the fact that Harry sacrificed himself and saved everybody and in that case normally the person who did that is dead but it would seem possibly that that curse that that or that protection against that any curses um that extended to all of the people who were at the battle possibly happened to fall on harry because this is all super untested magic and nobody knows why any of this is happening anyway so i apologize if this is jumping forward a little bit but I am very interested in this concept of Harry being able to protect everybody there because he died to save them. And because we know that Lily's protection helps Harry at least up until now, and we assume for the rest of his life. Um, so does the Harry's protection on everybody else wear off or does it stick with them? And that's mm. some really interesting impl- implication for the future. I don't know. Well, question. the difference there's the there is a I think significance significance in the difference of the two cases in that Lily and Harry shared blood. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, whereas Harry and also the fact that Voldemort's gone. 
Yes. So maybe with, you know, Voldemort gone, that protection is broken because there's, there seems to be a specific in like intent that it's almost it almost works not too dissimilarly, funnily enough, to the way the Felix Felicis works at the end of Half Blood Prince, um, and because Harry even notes that like the curses and and jinxes are just missing, like just, um, so it seems very similar to that idea. I feel like yes, this would wear off. So, but then we get into questions of, okay, so Delphi shares Voldemort's blood. <laughs> Sorry, we don't have to get into that conversation. <laughs> that's, no, do it! No, I'm just kidding. I think that's just such a hard wrench to throw in in this section. Yes, agreed. In such an elegantly I mean, written there's, chapter. And there's, I know. Yeah. Well, and we've, and, and there's been discussion, I believe, uh, in the in Dumb- in our Dumbledore's office uh, Patreon section, that because Katie mentioned that there is a line that's been added into the new productions of Cursed Child that wasn't there originally um, about yeah. Harry accusing Delphi of being an an extra Horcrux, um, and that just throws everything out the window. Um, yeah, I need to see that one yeah. and determine what's going on in context. I think. Yeah, that's some that's some Before dangerous. A that's a that. dangerous adjustment there. So, yeah, curse tr- trying to trying to add curse child into this discussion, I think, just compl- ends up complicating yeah. things more rather than actually it's an exercise in frustration. <laughs> yes, we can have a five hour curse child discussion whenever. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> So then we we get to a moment where let's all just take a moment for parallelism, which is like the theme of this entire Mm -hmm. chapter, um, is callbacks to everything that has happened ever in this series. (laughs) Um, And we start with Hagrid carrying Harry out of the forest, um, which draws us back to Hagrid carrying Harry out of Godric's Hollow. (laughs) Everyone take a tear. (laughs) Let some tears fall. (laughs) okay now let's get mad because we're getting next to the centaurs (laughs) Um, wait 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 but before we get to the centaurs it is just like i love that you pulled out the parallelism allison because rolling i think has said that this was something she always intended to do right yeah from the very from very early on because hagrid carried harry into the into the story and he ostensibly carries Harry out of it in, in a way. Um, so that's a, it, yeah, yeah there, that, that, the Hagrid carrying Harry and the, and the, and Hagrid's feeling of loss in this. It's so is, visceral. Yes. It's one it of, really is. for me, it's one of actually the most emotional pieces of this chapter is that how she writes that. And, and it's so hard from Harry's perspective because there's, there's nothing he can do to comfort Hagrid. Um, he just yeah, he can't say anything. Yeah, he just can we just shout out to Harry? Happen. Like, I think this is probably his greatest feat in all seven books that he's able Seriously. to stay dead for this long with so much pain and chaos going on around him. Like, I would definitely sneeze or I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he should definitely audition to play dead bodies on crime shows. Yes, <laughs> it's almost like you know Dan Radcliffe has now played a dead body. 
<laughs> yeah, that dead body makes a lot of different noises. <laughs> I wonder, though, um, if Harry has to, like, go back to Hagrid after all this is done and apologize to him for making him do that. <laughs> Probably I would if I were yeah. Harry. Like, that's just not cool. <laughs> Go say something. I <laughs> Although Hagrid being that it's probably, Harry, he probably wouldn't say anything. I feel like Harry or Hagrid probably would have understood the need. To. <laughs> oh no, I'm sure ha- Hagrid understands. But like, come on, Harry, you gotta go say something anyway. <laughs> Send a note or something. <laughs> yeah. Um. Speaking of Hagrid, I was gonna get to this later, but there's also a very sweet moment when chaos ensues. Um, a little bit later, where everybody else is like going crazy and screaming and running into the castle and Harry just hears Hagrid scream, Harry, where's Harry? Because he's disappeared. Yeah, he's the only one that and even notices Harry sad. is gone and it's yeah. so heart-wrenching because he's like the hero and everyone was so sad, but then he like disappears and no one even notices. What does Hagrid yeah, think that's... has happened to him in this moment? Like, it's I so confusing. It's yeah, I think it's implied that he thinks his body has been trampled. Or just, like, Aww. taken away. Yeah, the Death Eaters wanted yeah. to do something to it, I don't know. It's so heartbreaking. I mean, in a world of magic where anything can happen, yeah, you would probably panic if you lost a body. <laughs> <laughs> that could be there pretty traumatizing. There is no at Bernie's in the Wizarding World. <laughs> so they pass the centers on the way out. And I think, what do you guys think? I I get this feeling because why else would the centaurs like make themselves known that somehow they must have been waiting for this sort of sign to enter the battle? Does that make sense? Like, did do do you think the centaurs knew there was something about Horcruxes needing to be destroyed? before they had any chance and so that's why they didn't join until after but the snake isn't dead yet I, no i think the centaurs but maybe like oh what were you gonna say Allison? nothing keep going i was gonna say that i think the centaurs are like there's a difference between walking the walk and talking the talk and the centaurs have been so close-minded about this whole thing that I think it is an actual shock for them to see this play out and see the catastrophic consequences of being on the sidelines of this and choosing to t- extricate themselves from this. Um, like, to see what's happened... And I think the centaurs, regardless of their disrespect for human beings and thinking that they're kind of little and unimportant, they do seem to be aware that Harry is important. Um, They've always seemed to be conscious of that. I was going to say, I also get the impression that the centaurs are just functioning on a different scale, too. You know, we get some of that Mm -hmm. in Sorcerer's Stone where, you know, they're all looking at the stars and things like that. And I think, I don't know what the lifespan of a centaur is, but I just get the impression that, you know, this conflict to them might be just another in a line of many human conflicts that they've seen over the ages, and they just have kind of a longer view of things, and that's part of the reason it's easier for them to not get involved. 
The centaurs are a really beautiful example of the harm in thinking that something that doesn't immediately involve you isn't going to affect you. Um, Mm -hmm. And this might be the moment where the centaurs realize just because this doesn't directly involve us doesn't mean it isn't going to affect us. And maybe we do actually care about the outcome here. The centaurs need to learn some empathy is the moral of the story. Yeah. <laughs> it's that it's kind of like that um that famous poem uh that was written, I believe, during the Holocaust about the first they came for Oh yeah. Um mm-hmm. and it, the idea that yes, you know, I I said nothing. Um and I think too the other thing with the centaurs is that as as creatures who see the future but seem to see it in kind of a foggy, non-definitive way, I gather that the centaurs are aware of multiple possibilities and I think are a little shocked that this is the possibility that came to pass based on everything that happened. It's pretty unlikely that this could happen. Yeah, this is... Yeah. That's a bit of a shock to them, I think, because the the books the books from especially from Mort of the Phoenix onward deal with the idea that prophecy is not definitive in this universe. Um, there's a matter. There's a little bit of choice involved. There's a mixture of choice and fate, and I think the centaurs are practitioners and believers of that. That's all fascinating. Okay. I guess I'm the only one willing to give the centaurs, like, <laughs> the benefit of the doubt. But that's okay. <laughs> I mean, that's very that's very forgiving of you, but I think based on what they've said, they're kind of jerk faces and that Ferenz is the only one who is yeah. so enlightened as to think more, to be more forward thinking about this kind of stuff. So I need to stop giving them the benefit of the doubt. Okay. <laughs> I mean, they don't care. Either way, they'll drag you into the forest because they just don't like us That's anyway. True. So. <laughs> That's true. Don't want to get caught in that situation. No. <laughs> but in a different situation, we're going to quickly exit the forest. Um, and again, another piece of writing, a line in here that I just find absolutely gorgeous. Um is as they're exiting, Harry can feel that there are Dementors around them. Um, But he says he doesn't feel, they don't have the effect on him that they normally have. And the line is, as though his father's stag kept guardian of his heart. And I just... (sighs) (laughs) Yeah, that's a crunchy one. It's real good. I and I just find it fascinating that he refers to it as his father's stag, even though it's always been like, I mean, it, it was James's Patronus too, but like his Patronus taking the form of his father, you Ooh, know, I've, like it, it always belonged to Harry before. I've never thought of that before. That's awesome. Well, and now um, it's his father's stag, and I think that's so beautiful because considering last time when he went into the forest, he saw James. Mm-hmm. And he saw Lily, and he saw Remus, and he saw Sirius, and like, I'm gonna cry. Sorry, I'm 
It's a nice reminder that James is still significant to Harry, even though the fandom yeah. just wants to boot him off and just yeah. talk about Lily. Um, because Well, and that that's interesting too, because before it's always been Lily protecting him. I think there is a like that's the, the funny thing about this is that James protection is the whole crux of book three. Like yeah, that's a yes. huge theme, and it and it comes back every time Harry casts his Patronus. But despite that, everybody's like Lily. Um, so it is refreshing to to be. I mean, I think we even talked about that back when we examined the forest again. And actually, mm-hmm. James has more lines in that sequence than Lily does. She barely says anything. Not in the movie. Yeah, not in the movie. <laughs> well, and it's um, not well, like I... James didn't sacrifice himself too. He just was first. Exactly. <laughs> yes. Yes. So, which gets into a whole discussion about how that worked. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, no, I, I, I think it's lovely that we get this reminder that the I, and and also that the Patronus is kind of semi-final use in the book is is done in this way. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's a really cool kind of ba- like every every character and every significant piece of magic or item gets its final bow in Deathly Hallows, and this is a really great yes. way for the Patronus to make its exit. Yeah, well, and I love that um, the Resurrection Stone is sort of the magical example of how the people that Harry loves will be with him always. But this is the sort of real world example of like, okay, there isn't actually a Patronus there, but Harry is imagining that there is, and that is helping him. And his parents really are with him, even though, you know, they aren't actually physically with him. Um, And I think that that is... Such a beautiful translation into our world. Yeah, the ones yeah. we love. Alice, never well, I wonder. Us. Yes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Allison, I want to ask you a little bit about this because um, I don't really know much about this, and I think you would have more knowledge on this. With when this comes to parallels from the Bible, how does this all? work (laughs) like where does this fall because this is all this is all stuff about christ and the idea that christ is resurrected yeah um and harry is practicing like some extreme examples of hope and faith in this moment yeah and i just feel like there's like i don't know much about the new testament um so i'm kind of curious where this falls Oh my gosh, I haven't even thought of how this part falls into there. Mm. Um, the first thing that's popping into my mind, and if I had more time to think about it, maybe I would... I know, I blindsided it. you with this. But, one, but. No, no, it's okay. The first thing that's popping into my mind is... Don't ask me for the reference, I won't remember <laughs> it. But there, I think it's in a couple different places. Um, Oh my gosh! If you give if you myself. if you give if you give us the um, general gist, we won't be offended. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. I'm trying to think of when it is. I believe it's just be- after Christ has been resurrected, mm-hmm. but before he leaves the apostles. I think that's when it is. Hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. The verse when two or three are gathered in my name, there will I be also. Hmm. Was the first thing I thought of. Um, that kind of just like when people are gathered together when people are together doing good things 
Um, mm. Bringing kind of the people that are most important to them with them. Mm. Um, I can kind of see a parallel there. That's really nice. Um, I like that parallel. That's a good one. Like, Harry has just sacrificed himself, and now he's going to kind of finish finish the job, you know? And so his family who started this are there with him to see him through. And there are also so many good positive people who are about who are thinking that he's dead or who are about to take up the fight yeah. for him without knowing yeah. that he's still alive. Yeah, I think Neville's a good example yeah. of that just a little bit later where Voldemort is saying like, oh, your hero's dead. Now what are you going to do? And Neville is sort of like, this is about more than Harry and we're still going to keep fighting. I, speaking of this moment though, before we move past that, because I know we're going to get to the castle. We're going to get to the big stuff. Um, not that this isn't big, but the <laughs> the really big stuff. This idea that he can't feel Dementors when Dementors have always had such an impact on Harry, there seems to be this idea that magic in this world at a certain level can be so internal if you, like, completely master it, you know? Um, Like, outward physical magic is only the base level of what true magic is. Um... And, like, in its purest form, it doesn't even have to physically manifest itself. It just is... I'm trying to think of a good way, like, a good parallel to what I'm thinking of. Um, but I don't know if I can think of one. No, no, well, it's, um, it's, it's just this lovely idea that it's not... Because I think this is something we've talked about before with the series, is that... You know, Rowling's, I think Rowling's intent in this series is to say that really magic is not the thing that answers the problem. It's human actions, emotions, yeah. empathy. And this, this is more meaningful to a reader because the idea of, you know, casting a spell that protects you is lovely, but we don't have that in real life. But the equivalent of that is this immense feeling of hope that Harry has finally achieved that he's never had in his life at this level and i think the parallel in the real world for rolling we know is that she did suffer from depression and while she's not saying by this that necessarily you can eliminate your depression there are moments in life where you can see hope and joy and beauty and even in the at the lowest lows that you may reach and still be able to come through that yeah, I think this is all a really beautiful point, and I agree, Allison, that it's a it's a point throughout the series that there's more to magic than just, like, making sparks come out of your wand. There's something deeper to it, and I think we see that kind of on one end in little kids who just have magic bursting out of them, and then Lily's blood protection is another good example of, you know, that wasn't, like, an intentional spell yeah. that she cast. It was just something so deep and intrinsic that just based on her choices and the circumstance, it was powerful enough to, to protect Harry. There's a really great moment, listeners, if you've never watched it yet. There's a moment like this with a char- with the main character in uh, uh, the CW show Crazy Ex-Girlfriend, which if you're not watching, you should, because it has lots of Harry Potter references and you will like it. <laughs> so, but I won't spoil it, but season three, Crazy Ex-Girlfriend. 
it's worth the trip. Enjoy. It's a Just fun like game. Just like all my other recommendations that you all enjoy. <laughs> it's a fun game when Michael starts to uh, recommend something and you try to guess what you're about to recommend. <laughs> <laughs> that is a fun game. It's always a fun game. <laughs> What's the tie-in going to be? <laughs> <laughs> you just wait. You don't know. You don't know me. Ready for ready for not a fun game? Oh, no. Not a fun game is imagining everyone's reactions <laughs> when they get to the castle. This is the worst game. This is a terrible <laughs> game. It is the worst game. Because I think a line that still just, like, tears me to shreds. So they arrive at the castle, and someone says, No! And it just, like, tears me to shreds where Harry's just like, he did not think McGonagall would be capable of making that sound. And I'm just like, <sighs> Well, he has his eyes closed and he knows that it's her. <laughs> yes. And it just like tears into me. And maybe part of it is being a teacher now. Um, and having gone through some experiences this year with with some students and just... Yeah. It's painful. Yeah, and yeah, it's think it's really wonderful to, you know, you think of McGonagall as such a hard line. And so and composed. Yeah. Yes. Um, and to see this from her is, I mean, it's not unexpected, um, but it's also not anything we've ever seen from her before. And I think McGonagall has such a different affection for Harry than we get mm -hmm. from Dumbledore. Like, I know Dumbledore is a very controversial topic, but yeah. he clearly had affection for Harry, but not maybe in the more pure way that McGonagall did because she wasn't using him. <laughs> you know, she just <laughs> cared about him as, <laughs> as her student, and she obviously had cared about his parents, and he's in this tragic situation, um, and she's seen him grow up up and she McGonagall obviously loves Harry and I think that doesn't get expressed explicitly very often but here we really see mm -hmm. it and it's totally heartbreaking. Yeah. Part of the reason why this hits so hard too is McGonagall has always been like the champion of Harry's future mm -hmm. Ooh. and like Harry's potential. Um, she's the one who sees him fly and says you're going to be a great Quidditch player. She like pushes him throughout all of his years. In fifth year when he has career advice she's the one who's like you will be an aura if it's the last thing I do if I have to train you every night, you know? Like You are stabbing me physically to the heart. I'm sorry. Well, and I can't remember. I know McGonagall has sort of this tragic romantic history, too. Did it ever say in her Pottermore yes. entry if she, like, desired to have children? I think it does she say that something about that. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's something that I think was a possible thought in her in her head. But, yeah. All of her relationships and, didn't really work out that well. And so I think to see this student that she's come to care about so much with so much potential that I think she had such high hopes for just cut down. Well, we do that. That's Gosh. interesting, too, that you mentioned that, Emily, with her backstory, because she's she has lost a lot of people in her life already. So mm -hmm. layer that on with this. And that's. She's lost a lot of people who were, you know, confidants, like people that she could lean on or talk to or who knew things that only she knew or, you know, very intimate 
aspects of her life and harry i think is kind of the last person who you know she has a very it's not a deep connection in too too much of a personal way but it's a deep connection connection in a student teacher way Mm -hmm. um where she's watched this boy grow up and is very invested in his life and his future so it's interesting to think about this in context of Dumbledore's death as well, because we know that Dumbledore's death was hard on McGonagall and that they had some closeness. Um, And, you know, if you if you think about it, this is sort of an extension of Dumbledore's death, but worse because Dumbledore had a full life and he also, you know, um, he he intentionally put himself into the fight. Um, whereas Harry didn't get a full life and this was all just thrust upon him. And, yeah. And so it's like the pain of Dumbledore's death, but double. Yeah. Um, moving on though, because more people react, obviously. I think it's just worth mentioning that Ron is the first to directly challenge Voldemort. Like, Ron is the first one to directly shout out and be like, yeah, but he beat you, you know? Like, he he's the first one to actually do anything um, in reaction to Voldemort. And I was just like, <laughs> you go, Ronald. You go. He's always got Harry's back, no matter what. And I think we forget that in this book. But you go, Ronald. <laughs> you go. And that's that. I think what Ron does actually holds up to something we were talking about with this, with the magic that's going on. Because Voldemort's spell initially does work, but then Ron breaks it. Yes. Um, So it's it's kind of similar to how the Cruciatus Curse on Harry. It's doing something, but it's not doing the right thing. Um, So I think that's part of it too. Is that these spells are just kind of half working or only only working to a point there seems to be a lot of willpower involved in breaking these spells and even though like even though harry's willpower against the cruciatus curse wasn't maybe as conscious as it was in book four it's like because of his positive thinking and the and his belief that voldemort can't hurt him anymore that seems to have kind of negated the actual curse and in this sense Voldemort has managed to silence the crowd with magic, but they've all had enough belief and willpower to break those curses multiple times. That makes me wonder if some magic is, like, some spells work because there's some sort of subconscious, like, consent. Mm. You know? Mm-hmm. I think, yeah, we've, because we've talked about Because that's kind of how before. Harry breaks the Imperious curse, too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's dependent on huh. the type of the type of spell and what it's doing. Um, but yeah, we, I think we've talked about that in, somewhat in, t- in terms of the Imperious Curse before. Yeah. And then, of course, uh, Voldemort is trying to break down Harry's kind of legend by telling everyone that Harry was killed as he was trying to run away to save himself. And I just have to say... Neville directly calls Voldemort out on that, which seems like a very Hufflepuff thing to do. And I love Neville. Neville, Neville is so badass in this chapter. He, like, 
Well, yes. Was, yeah. Well, and I think this is a good example of another parallel that we have, too. I think this parallels um, the moment we see in the first book when he stands up to Ron, Harry, and Hermione when they're going to um, go look for the Sorcerer's Stone. And it takes all this courage for him to stand up to them. And obviously it takes a lot of courage to stand up to Voldemort. And in both situations, he gets a body bind put on him. So. Oh. Whoa. Hmm. I'd never realized that. I, I just realized that right now. <laughs> That'd be so many one of those parallels. parallels. Oh my gosh. Yep. <laughs> They're everywhere in this chapter. Um, I like that Neville... Um, doesn't have to say much because I am not a fan of his movie speech. And this You're not? No, I hate his movie speech. I, I don't even remember his movie speech, so I must not have been very impressed. I love it. Oh, uh, I just I think it's like just very pandering to the audience and like the sappy music plays and he's just like we did it for Harry and blah 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 and I'm just like, Yeah, I don't care, Neville, get on with it. <laughs> and like this I but he says all he needs to say in the book and I think and I forgot that he actually doesn't say that much. Um, he says he pretty much just shouts at Voldemort a few phrases. Um, and then Voldemort sets him on fire, which doesn't happen in the movie. Yeah, I didn't um, remember yeah, that when I was intense. rereading this. And that's pretty horrifying. <laughs> yeah, no, it's... It really is, though. It's ridiculous. Yes. No, it's terrifying. Yeah, there's much... To me, there's much more... There's a The movie goes for a much more movie-esque... <laughs> I'm yeah. Spartacus moment um, <laughs> versus the book, which actually goes for a very tense, suspenseful moment um, that really doesn't necessarily have the promise of ending well. Because uh, it's more action packed. Yes, yes. Well, and there's more movement. Yeah, yeah. A lot less, a lot less speech. A lot more, a lot more action. Definitely. Speaking of that action, um, pretty much after all of that happens, and it's another great line, and then several things happened at once. <laughs> I just, I remember just reading that and just being like, oh my gosh, like the world is going to end right now, you know? Um, so the battle begins again, and uh, I need your opinions, because I think we may need to call BS on something Rowling has said about this moment and the Slytherin's going to get reinforcements um, because it says that Charlie Weasley and Slughorn are kind of leading the charge from the reinforcements coming in along with the family and friends of every Hogwarts student that had stayed to fight. So unless... The Slytherin specifically went and got all the Hogsmeade residents? See, I always thought Joe had said all of the Slytherins left, that, like, none of them stayed behind. And then from the Ravenclaws, a couple stayed. And then, like, most of, like, almost all of Hufflepuff and all of Gryffindor stayed. Yes. Yes, but she said in interviews that, like, oh, well, the Slytherins left, but some of them went and got the reinforcements that showed up. Eh, I guess Slughorn is a Slytherin. Does that count? Okay, that's true. I mean, it's as much BS as saying that all the Hufflepuffs stayed. You kind of can't have it both ways on that one because they're both extra canonical statements by her. That's true. Um, they're not. They're not okay. textual evidence. There's no textual evidence 
in the book that either of those things happen because especially because we literally saw Zachariah Smith bolting for the door. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's true. true. <laughs> so that's wrong. Um but gosh, Zachariah Smith, I hate him. Oh, worse. Um <laughs> I forgot about him. So so yeah, I I don't think it's it's not BS in that like she yes, she decided to claim that outside of the book and depending on how you define your canon, sure, you can say that that happened. But as far as the... like, And she didn't say in her statement that she wrote that in the book. She just said, that's a thing that happened. But I, okay. I think it would have helped if she put it in the, in the book. <laughs> so. Yeah. Would have been nice. Yes. Um, but I do... I have to say, rereading this chapter, and I think this is something the movie did really well, um, just the enormity of, we see pretty much everything we know in this world coming together um, at this moment. Giants, Dementors, House Elves, all these different Fantastic Beasts, the Centaurs, the Wizards, like, everybody just kind of shows up <laughs> for this last scene. Um and it's something I think the film did really well with those, like, kind of, like, cameos and small things calling back to other films. Um, yeah, the film does, well... That just makes... The film does it all in one contained scene in the yeah. courtyard battle scene where... And many, many an article that thinks itself quite clever, <laughs> which... No, most people got this just watching. <laughs> You're the about movie. seven years too late. Yes, but yeah, the there's there's a reference to each Potter film in the courtyard, um, depending on how much you want to stretch certain imagery. Um, but yeah, there's a reference to all the previous Potter films in in the courtyard battle scene. Yeah, and I don't know. It just felt. It makes it feel so epic to have everything mm -hmm. we've basically ever heard of. The all only come thing together. that's missing is the Ford Anglia. <laughs> and you know what? It wouldn't surprise me if somewhere somebody had found it. <laughs> I would like to think it's in there just mowing down Death Eaters or something. I would love that. I was a little disappointed because she did tell us that the Ford Anglia would come back and unfortunately it did not. But this kind of would have been the perfect place to have it. Just smashing through. Would have been amazing. That's my new headcanon. That's beautiful. <laughs> it's like driving through the forest just mowing down Death Eaters as they try <laughs> yes. and run away. <laughs> Love it. Oh my gosh. Yeah, it's kind of, I mean, it's kind of like that joke where, uh, you, you know, everybody used to say about how, you know, you just take a gun and shoot. Voldemort and that's the end of it and it's like yeah magic sure but also car <laughs> run him over <laughs> so much easier you could solve this years ago the thing I love about the way the book does this um, the enormity of it rather than the movie is that the book is more subtle um Whereas the movie yeah. is like, in your face, here's a thing you recognize, and here's another one, and how about another one? <laughs> um, whereas, and I think, Allison, you have outlined such an awesome list of these that the book sort of makes you draw your own parallels between a lot of the things that we start seeing here. 
Yes. Let's jump into that. Um, as Harry's running through the Great Hall, he sees all of these little skirmishes, skirmishes, skirmish, you had it. For? skirmishes, yep, right? That's the yeah. word. That's how, okay. Um, going on around him. And I started realizing there's a parallel for every, there's a reason each person is fighting each other. Um, so he, he specifically mentions George Weasley and Lee Jordan work together to take down Yaxley, who I would say arguably is the Death Eater with the least sense of humor <laughs> um, and is pretty twisted in a bad way, um, which is a nice parallel to our joke shop people. Um, Hagrid throws McNair across the room, which is an awesome payback for Buckbeak. Yes, it is. <laughs> Um, and everything like that, that was going to happen to him. This one I'm stretching. The next one I'm stretching. Um, but Flitwick takes down Dalho. Dal- oh my gosh. I can't talk today. Dalho? <laughs> Dalho, yeah. Um, yeah. Who, in the Battle of the Department of Mystery, is the one who's using some of the particularly nasty charms. Uh, he's the one who does that purple flame spell that takes out Hermione. Um, who, as we know, is one of Flitwick's favorite students. Um, and he uses Tarantalegra on Neville, which causes the prophecy to break. Yeah, Dalahov's, So I'm scratching that one. Dalahov's the one that killed Lupin. Yeah. Um, that too. So I'm very happy to see Flitwick take him down. <laughs> <laughs> um, speaking of Lupin, actually, Ron and Neville take down Greyback, which I think is awesome for Bill's Obviously, Greyback attacked Bill. And Ron and Neville are two students that Lupin put a lot of confidence in, I think. Um, oh, I like that. And helped really develop. And so it's nice to see them take down the person who basically ruined Lupin's life. Mm-hmm. Um, Aberforth stuns Rookwood, who, of course, was a spy for the Death Eaters. And Aberforth, of course, was a spy for Dumbledore. And both of these spies are ones that kind of stayed in the shadows for a very long time and didn't come out until the end. Um, we know Rookwood uh, was exposed by um, Karkaroff in his trial and was still working at the Ministry at that point. And Aberforth, of course, we don't even know about until Deathly Hallows. Um, this is my favorite parallel, by the way. Oh, I love this <laughs> one. Arthur and Percy take down Pious Thickness which is the ministry connection plus Arthur and Percy obviously are working together again in a way they haven't for a very long time. And that makes <laughs> poor, me happy. Poor thickness. I bet when he... Poor thickness. <laughs> <laughs> He's just a little addled. That's all. It's <laughs> That's not true. all his fault. Here's my thing. Thickness is technically supposed to be under the Imperious curse. But I'm starting to wonder if that wasn't pretty easy to pull off on him like if he was Mm. leaning that direction anyway maybe yeah it's interesting because the movie like weirdly doesn't play like mention the imperious he plays it like he's under the imperious curse but nobody ever mentions it the movie just kind of is like yep yeah he's a puppet but like he's okay (laughs) with it (laughs) and then we get to our two kind of big battles in the center of the room that harry runs up to which is Voldemort taking on McGonagall, Kingsley, and Slughorn, which I was just like, oh my gosh, they add up 
to Harry in a lot of ways. Um, you've got McGonagall, who's the teacher that helped shape Harry as a Gryffindor. Um, Kingsley, who currently works in the position that Harry's soon going to take over. And the man that gave Harry the information that has led to this moment, you know, that's going to lead to Harry succeeding and destroying Voldemort. Um, so it takes all three of them, these critical parts of, you know, this journey of who Harry is, and they're all fighting Voldemort at this moment just before Harry himself takes on Voldemort. It is not fair how good this is. Yeah, that's a really cool interpretation, <laughs> too. I like that a lot. Thanks. <laughs> and then on the other side, we have Bellatrix taking on Hermione, Luna, and Ginny, who are the three strongest girls Harry knows, and they're all very dear and important to him. I mean, we've got Hermione, who saved his life multiple times, Luna, who's helped him work through rough things by showing him a different perspective, and Ginny, who he loves for everything that she is. Um, <laughs> These are also kind just... of the only three girls that Harry knows substantially well... <laughs> <laughs> when you think about it. But yes, I love this. Uh... And then Bellatrix is finished by Molly, and I love Harry's watching Molly fight Bellatrix, and it just says he just feels this mix of terror and elation. <laughs> I'm just like, same, Harry. Same. <laughs> um, I'm there with you. And just, oh, man, these parallels and just these these little connections of all of this coming together. It's the perfect climax of anything. <laughs> it is interesting that Molly is the one to take Bellatrix down because a lot of the fandom has pointed out that it would have also been nice to see Neville do it. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's been a common argument since um, since Hallows was released. I, I mean, I still like that it's Molly, though. Yeah, and I love seeing this side of Molly. Like, it, it's kind of shocking in the moment the first time you read it, because you just never see that side of her. But when you think about who she is as a character, I mean, I think it's completely in character for her to be that ferocious of a warrior. I mean, she's a Gryffindor, and we obviously mm -hmm. know that she would do anything for her children, including this. So, But the big question I always wonder is if she actually used Avada Kedavra to finish Bellatrix, because we don't hear her say the incantation. We don't see any flash of green light that has come to sort of stand for that curse. It just says that the curse hit Bellatrix squarely in the chest over her heart. And so I wonder, like, one, is it possible to kill people using just, like, hitting them really hard in the chest with some other curse, or does it have to be the killing curse in order for it to actually kill them. I think because, because it's specifically mentioned that there's this parallel Harry sees between Bellatrix's death and Sirius's mm -hmm. death, that I don't think it's Avada Kedavra. I think it's something else. And it just happens. I feel like if you hit someone with something in the right spot, it, yeah, it can be just fatal. Yeah, Does physiologically, I mean, wizards are still human, so they might be able to withstand injury better than muggles do, but I still, I mean, like, you know, you chop off a wizard's head, they're still gonna die, so you still hit them right in the heart, they, that can still yeah. be fatal. So that's, I get that impression too, and I think it's interesting that I don't know that we see any of our quote-unquote good guys ever use Avada Kedavra, even though um, they do succeed in killing some people. Yeah, well, I, I love that. 
Allison, you mentioned previously the the purple fire spell that was used on Hermione, and if, I mean, mm-hmm. if she hadn't been taken to Madame Pomfrey not too soon after what happened, she may have died because it's like it, I think there was like possibility that it had caused some kind like it had done damage to her internally. Um, yeah, and they say like if he had been able to say the incantation, it would have been allowed. Yeah, she would have been she would have been much worse yeah. off. Well, and I possibly think, dead. I think that Draco definitely could have died in the bathroom yeah. if Snape hadn't come to rescue him. Yeah, Sectum Semper literally cuts you up so bad that you can just lose, die of blood loss. Yeah, I feel like Avada so. Kedavra is sort of the wizarding equivalent of getting shot, and then there's certainly other <laughs> mechanisms by which you can do significant enough bodily harm to finish someone off. Well, in the parallel between the scene with Sirius, there was a lot of debate in the fandom about whether Bellatrix used the killing curse on Sirius, because there's yeah. not enough textual evidence to say that she did. Um... So, because I don't even think it says necessarily the color of the spell. Mm-mm. It just says a spell hit him. Um, and a bunch of people were, thought that he died by physically falling through the veil. I wasn't even convinced um, that he died the first time I read it because, like you said, there was mm-hmm. no clear indication of the curse that had been used. And I was kind of like waiting for him to make his exciting return in book six, which did not happen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sadly. <laughs> Sorry, it's just sad and like... Weren't we all there? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there was a time when that was thought to be an, a, a possibility. The only person who probably wasn't excited about that thought was Kat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that leads us then to the final confrontation. Um, Can I just say that I used to hate this part. I thought it was boring. When I first read it. What? Yeah, I thought it was really boring. It was dialogue heavy and just not what I expected. But I was wrong. That was wrong. And the movie definitely showed me how wrong I was about that. Yeah. Because the movie's ending is stupid. Like, <laughs> yeah. crazy stupid. And, like, unacceptably, I don't know why the Potter fandom is okay with it. Stupid. Like I don't know that this... we are. We've just... We just started, we go. know we can't do anything yeah. about it at this point, so. <laughs> That's never stopped y'all from complaining before, <laughs> that, like, I'm just... Well, or it's one that it's just, like, so bad that everyone's just, like, they have to know it's that well, bad, Well, I guess right? it's just like, always... They have to know it's inter- that bad. <laughs> I think it's just interesting to me because the, the final, like, there's so many things in part two, because a lot of people really, really like part two. I believe, Allison, it's one of your favorites you've mentioned before. And a lot I of, do like part two and, a lot. And yeah. a lot of the fandom feels that way, or is very into part two. But part two, to me, makes such egregiously bad choices that deviate so far from the book as to pretty much rewrite some intentions of the book. Yeah. I don't know why the fandom will forgive that, but won't forgive smaller grievances from the other movies and be like, this movie's the worst because of this one thing that happened. But literally, Deathly Hell is part two is the other way around. I think it's because it, it, some of it's a nostalgia thing, I think. Yeah, and I like think so, too. Emotional attachment mm-hmm. to it. But I think some of it, too, is, for the most part, part two feels tonally correct. For the most part. Depending um, on who you ask. And so, yeah, but I, I, I think, yeah. <laughs> I think in a lot of ways, I mean, combined with the emotional 
whole part two takes on everyone, I think, mm. with that tonal feeling where like it it feels pretty right. I think that's why people let things slide. Yeah, that's I and I think that's maybe why I'm not like a fan of part two because there's when movies go for what I consider to be a more cheap emotional shot, which I think part two does a lot. And there's moments where part two is very genuine. Like the for the forest again scene is done very well. Snape's memories mm. are done very well. There's a lot in part two that's done well. But there are some cheap shots and I feel like like the battle is the cheapest shot because it's it's not even cheap, it's just lazy. Um like all of this dialogue is erased. All of it. <laughs> this is the book, it's all dialogue, and none of this makes its way to the movie. Well, because I think some of it is they didn't include some of these complexities in the previous yeah the movies like Mm. at all so this the whole point of this is the explanation of what happened and how he got here you know and i will say obviously we've been arguing about it for long enough the book doesn't even give us all the answers technically no um and so they had left so much of it out anyway and like you said i think visually it would have been boring like here, let's have them have a five-minute dialogue about what just well, happened. Walking you know, in circles around visually, each other. that seems boring. Yeah, and whereas in the book, and if they had done it right, I think it could have been exciting. Oh yeah, you know, I think had... I think the book and the movie are two different extremes. The book is completely dialogue heavy, which in some ways I still think is a bit of a it's a risky choice. Um, not always successful, in my opinion. It's not the best part of Harry Potter to me. When people ask me personally what my favorite part is, I'm not going to say this. But at the same time, the 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 movie is the complete opposite, where it issues dialogue completely for visual action, which in a movie I kind of get, but also there's some things that were left out, even in a visual sense, like, there's no satisfaction to Voldemort's death because he doesn't even understand what happened. And yeah. at least here, Harry gives him a breakdown that as a reader, I feel you can be a little more satisfied that Voldemort was confronted. And Allison, you've got a great list here of all the things that Harry confronts Voldemort with, that even if he doesn't fully understand it or process it, he at least heard it. Yeah. Yeah. He says some interesting things, too, though, Voldemort, in this this conversation. Um, I did not write all of this down that I'm about to say, so buckle up, guys, because I just thought of it. (laughs) Um, So he starts out by basically trying to taunt Harry by saying every reason Harry's ever lived is an accident. Um, And Harry shoots back with, it was an accident that my mother saved, died to save me. It was an accident that I chose to fight in the graveyard. It was an accident that I'm choosing to fight right now. And these are like the big pivotal choices, right? Choices in their two stories. Where technically in Harry's story, right? They're, they're the big, the choices that everything turns on. But in a lot of ways, they're the accidents in Voldemort's plan, right? Lily wasn't supposed to die. She was supposed to just walk away in Voldemort's plan, right? And he could have killed Harry and it would have been done. Um, Harry wasn't supposed to fight and win in the graveyard. He was supposed to die. 
and no one was supposed to know he was back, right? That's an accident on him. And the fact that Harry survived this last killing curse is also an accident to Voldemort, right? It's it's not a part of his plan. And it was just like, watching these two stories from either side and seeing how Voldemort doesn't believe anyone else can make a choice. Well, in... In a lot of ways. In the way that Voldemort is defining, is choosing to, f- to find define the word accident is um, actually inherent goodness. Voldemort yeah. doesn't have an understanding or concept of inherent goodness. And that's what all of these things are. Harry surviving in Goblet of Fire is because he had a sense of goodness in him and the sense of what was right. Lily had a sense of what was good and what was right. The, you know, and I, <laughs> I mean, funnily enough in this moment when, when Voldemort is pointing out all the reasons that Harry survived Hermione, he should have raised her hand and been like me, only me. <laughs> All me. <laughs> that, so there he does have a point that You want to know some real accidents that I saved him from? Let me write you a list. <laughs> I, he does have a point that Harry relied on a lot of individuals, but in a way I don't think Harry so much relied on them is that these people's inherent goodness pushed them to help yeah. Harry. That's a really good point. Yeah, Voldemort wouldn't know how to call it anything other than an accident because <laughs> Voldemort would believe that being good is an accident. You know who's an accident? Voldemort. Ooh. <laughs> oh! Ow. Just trying to diffuse the tension. <laughs> I'm trying to think of a transition to this. <laughs> yeah. On that note. Um, you don't need one. You just jump on okay, to the next Okay, let's just go. Um, color symbolism comes up again. Here again. Um, and I found it interesting. She specifically mentions they stared into each other's eyes, green into red. But obviously we know the spells they use at the end. Avada Kedavra is green. And Expelliarmus is red. And that's just like, whoa. (laughs) And I mean, I I was looking at symbolism of colors and it's interesting because both green and red can have very opposite symbolisms. Um, I mean, red can be excitement, energy, love, passion, but it can also be heat and aggression and danger and blood and violence and it's, it's these very polar opposites, right? Um, whereas green can be like nature and health and youth and spring. Or it can be jealousy and envy and... Oh, man. Just how did these two colors just be picked so perfectly <laughs> that they can be a symbol for both sides? Yeah, no, this is a, this is a testament to Rowling's genius and her knowledge of... Uh, intense knowledge of layers of symbolism because she's picked these colors a long time ago you know and these colors infuse the world we automatically associate red with Gryffindor and we automatically associate green with Slytherin we automatically associate red with Voldemort's eyes or like we you know there's there's these these dualities in in 
all of these colors. Like we've gone from we've gone from Sorcerer's Stone where everything is <laughs> using colors again, black and white, to <laughs> Deathly Hallows where everything is gray. You know, uh, Gryffindor and Slytherin have a- aspects of them that are both good and bad, and people have aspects of them. Magic has ha- aspects of it that are good and bad. Um, yeah, I love I love that. Because the the point of this confrontation is that we are pitted we are pitting good against bad, but bad has an opportunity to repent and yeah see its mistake and feel some sense of remorse and goodness, just a drop of it. Which apparently, if he had, it would have killed him, according to <laughs> to Rowling. So he would have died either way. Um, but at least. You know, there was a possibility that that could have happened, and Harry is really grasping onto that possibility here. Speaking of people <laughs> who are dead, um, <laughs> I, I caught this line this time where, okay, I'll just read it. Dumbledore is dead. Voldemort hurled the words at Harry as though they would cause him unendurable pain. But it doesn't. It doesn't. Harry remains very calm. I I think that. this whole book is chronicling Harry's journey of forgiving Dumbledore and coming to terms with Dumbledore's death and with how everything happened at the end of Dumbledore's life. And I think this is the moment where Harry is finally okay. Harry has a deep, profound understanding of what death is now. Yes, he does. Um, yeah. Voldemort's, I mean, Voldemort's taunts and simple understandings of life and death are as ineffective as his spells at this point. Um, it's, 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 and we were talking about cheap emotional shots. That's a cheap shot, Voldemort. <laughs> <laughs> like, that's the best <laughs> you can do. That's all you got. Well, he's yeah. flailing now. He's like, he, yeah, he is. He's yeah. running out of ideas for how to defeat Harry, and he's just trying everything that he can think of. And especially at this point, yeah, after we... everything that Harry has been through and everything he's lost, like Harry is acutely aware that this is the moment. Like this is where it ends, one way or another. And so, it's not mm-hmm. really like the time to feel sad about what's been mm-hmm. lost leading up to this because he's just so present in the moment and so focused on what needs to be done that it doesn't like yes i'm aware dumbledore is dead and he's had this whole book to come to terms with that and like you guys were saying um he just has a very in-depth understanding of death that it's just it doesn't affect him to be have that hurled at him this is why I love that scene. One of my favorite scenes in Deathly Hallows is actually when Harry goes to the graveyard and the description yeah. of his of his understanding of that moment and the idea that his parents' bodies were dead in the ground and they're not there and there's there there's no way that they are supporting him in this journey and that he is on his own and that that is a part of the understanding of death that you have to hit at a certain point. Because I think throughout the seven books, Harry, in a weird way, this is weird to say, but has this weird sense that his parents are alive and almost that he will meet them and that 
mm-hmm. course, in Deathly Hallows, he does get to in a way when he realizes that they have been there all along. And I think Dumbledore is the same. Like Dumbledore would logically, in his mind, be the same way. Of of course, Dumbledore's physically dead, but he's that doesn't mean what he's done for me and what he's contributed to my life is no longer relevant. If anything, it's more relevant. Also, side note, he did just talk to Dumbledore in, you know, limbo. And Dumbledore's portrait is upstairs. Not to discount. But Dumbledore's around (laughs) in many ways. He's here. (laughs) I just talked to him. Average dead person. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Not to undercut the beauty of the concept, but also he literally is about to go upstairs and talk to him. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> it's so fascinating, Michael, that you talk about Harry not really, truly grasping that his parents are gone forever um, mm. until this book. I-, I hadn't really thought of it that way, but you're right, because, you know, his first thought in Prisoner is that, oh, that was my dad's Patronus, and obviously that's impossible. Um, and he doesn't really let go of that until he visited until he visits Godric's Hollow and sees their grave and and it sort of hits him that yep they're right here and they will never be a part of my life in a physical way and I wonder if that sort of helps him understand death as a concept as well just more deeply. Yeah, and you have to think he mm-hmm. never really had an opportunity for closure regarding his parents' death. It's not like right. he he grew up knowing, knowing um, why they had really died or where they were buried. You know, even someone whose parents died when they were an infant, they would probably at least have the opportunity to, like, go visit their graves and things like that and, and have more time to conceptualize that. And Harry doesn't get that opportunity until he's 17. Um, and so it makes sense that it kind of took him that long to come to terms with the fact that, yes, his parents are really dead, and also his understanding of magic, too, entering this magical world, it might have seemed reasonable that death was not perhaps as final as he was led to believe in the muggle world, but of course we learn throughout the series that that's kind of the whole point of the series. Mm-hmm. It's interesting you bring this up, too, because it just reminded me... Um, Spoiler alert, if no one's read Series of Unfortunate I was just thinking Um, that! (laughs) Yes! There's a big moment, and it's been a while since I've read that one, but there's a big moment in the last book where the Baudelaire's finally, like, internalize and, like, accept that their parents are dead. And they finally, after 13 books, they finally cry Mm -hmm. about that. You know? Like, they finally get that catharsis of like that realization, you know, and it's interesting that Harry gets this at the end of his yeah. series too. Yeah. Spoiler, but there's a fake out in book eight that uh, makes the Baudelaire's think that one of yes. their parents is alive and they do yes. go through a similar track. Cause interestingly the, and it is a great series to read listeners. If you, if you did enjoy, I often recommend it to kids who like Harry Potter and are looking for something else. And the funny thing is most and kids I feel the last one's really annoying. Well, yes, me. yes, it has, it has some flaws, but a lot of kids shy away uh, that I recommended to from unfortunate events and even some adults because they're like, Oh, it's just too depressing. And I'm like, well, it is in the name. And literally every back of the book tells you not to read them. But that said, <laughs> 
if you enjoyed so much dark humor, right? If, well, right. If you have a good sense of humor, and if you enjoyed Harry Potter, you probably will enjoy unfortunate events in in many respects if you keep going with it. And it does have that. It does have a lot of similar ideas about death and how young people have to cope with death. And also, it loves stuff about young, uh, like young people internalizing how the world is morally gray just like harry yeah. potter and uh yeah it 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 it, it lines up on, on a lot of themes that harry potter does which it, it's perfect also side note watch the netflix series because it's amazingly it's really well done yeah. and the kid who plays duncan looks like he could play harry potter <laughs> so just gonna throw that one out there allison's, um. allison's not saying there should be a netflix series for harry potter but she's not not <laughs> if they were if they were gonna do it like... well i have mixed emotions on that idea but anyway we <laughs> we're not gonna get in there speaking of emotions though um uh that was a good one. <laughs> I have to say that's a good one. I okay. I close read the heck out of this chapter. I just want everyone to know that I was just picking up on words and phrases. Mm. Um, as the Harry and Dumbledore, Harry and Dumbledore. Oh my gosh, Harry and Voldemort continue to circle each other in this kind of tense standoff. Harry makes an appeal. And he says, be a man, try for some remorse. I just love it. Which just, the phrasing Mm -hmm. gets me again. Because nowhere else has Rowling in the series used a phrase like, be a man. And it's such a remarkable thing to juxtapose being a man with feeling remorse and love and understanding and i think it especially hits now as we've started talking about and identifying more in the past few years and combating this toxic masculinity that kind of infects everywhere um and for harry to be this to be the thing in this moment where he's supposed to be winning the battle Oh my gosh. No, I think that's great. Oh I've gosh. never really looked at it that way. But I love and the, when I read it aloud for MuggleNet for the MuggleNet live thing with the with the live live of posting, um I re- this line hit me like it hit you, Allison, where I was just like, "Dang, that is that's powerful." What Harry's saying here. To me, I always read it as him like I I read him use the his use of the word man as the patriarchal shorthand for saying human. Um oh because Harry is kind of saying that has has an understanding that Voldemort is inhuman in the way he that he acts and behaves and what he's done to himself through magic. But I do also love that this I mean Rowling chooses her words very carefully. And I think there is there that interpretation that you put forth, Allison. I I'm sure there's validity to that because Rowling has a tradition of characters who are not necessarily the um, stereotypical depiction of masculinity. Yeah, she subverts expectations left and right, and I think mm-hmm. um, this is just another example of that where. You know, that's that's a phrase that is so common 
in our vernacular um, that a lot of people, I think, use it without even thinking about the weight of what that phrase means. Um, and here, it's just turned on its head in such a cool way. Um, I absolutely love it. Yeah, I love, I, I feel like, too, the thing that I, like, really, like, hit me in, in my last read of it was that Harry really is, he's not, in a way, he's not even trying to explain the whole thing to Voldemort. He's just trying to get him to, he, he like, what it is is that it, Harry's, what never really hit me, is that Harry really is empathetic to Voldemort. Like, he is so sad that he knows what he's going to become. And he's so sad that because I think he knows that Voldemort will not ever be remorseful. Like there's, there is a sadness in Harry's appeal to Voldemort. And I think that's why Dumbledore has chosen him for this role is because, and we see that throughout the series that Dumbledore says, how Harry has a beautiful un way of wanting to help, and that even in that moment in the uh, in the in limbo at the at King's Cross, Harry wants to help that creature that Voldemort has become. Yeah. Well, and Harry um, must know that Voldemort is is completely beyond remorse. There is no way yeah. that he would ever feel remorse. He's beyond help. He's beyond everything. Um, and he tries anyway. I don't know, you know, how yeah. much hope he has in that attempt, but he opens that up one more time. And I think that says a lot about Harry. It doesn't say much about Voldemort, but it says a lot about Harry. <laughs> yeah. But I still think to some extent Harry knew it wouldn't happen. Oh, yeah. Like, he's definitely. still making the appeal, but he knew it wouldn't happen. And there's, like I said, close read a lot of this. It brings me down to after he's defeated him it says he's staring down at his enemy's shell and just the use of the word shell goes into that you know like that Voldemort had decimated himself so much that he doesn't even leave something substantial he's not a body yeah he's just empty yeah he's he's I, I, Harry has that has had that deep understanding of Voldemort, I think thoroughly f cemented in book six with knowing what Voldemort did to himself. Um, yeah, I think, I think I, 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 that's what hit me about this time that I read it is that Harry, Harry understands the tragedy of Voldemort's story. Like, cause Voldemort's story is, is tragic. Um, yeah. And he know. And I think you're right. I think he does know that there was no chance, and that's what makes it more tragic. But he gives the choice, right? That's the whole thing mm -hmm. about choices. And so Harry yeah. is offering Voldemort the opportunity to make the right choice. Mm -hmm. Well, and it's giving it's him really, the opportunity to make a choice, right? For sure. Yeah. And I think it's really easy to think about evil people or people who have done evil as just like they're not even human and human would never be able to do s things like that um but it's actually really important in understanding that situation and that person to realize that it was a person that made choices that that brought them to do those things and harry is 
acknowledging that and giving weight to that concept that Voldemort at least was a person and made all of the choices deliberately that brought him to the place that he, he is now. And it has completely ruined him instead of building up, which is what he intended. Before we dive into that again, because I actually want to end with something that's close to this, mm-hmm. that's going to get deep again. But someone tell me if I'm reading too far into things. Um, there's this line that always gets me for some reason. Uh, after they cast their curses and the Elder Wand flies out of D- or Voldemort's hand. Why do I keep saying Dumbledore? Holy cow. Freudian um, slip. <laughs> And, and it says, and Harry with the unerring skill of the seeker. The seeker, not a seeker? Oh. Why the different article? Um, because Harry is the seeker. He's a, he is the seeker of the, of the hallows, of the, the end of this, this, you know, this, this, journey of this of this conflict harry is an harry is an a seeker he's the seeker. i mean it's not i don't think it's coincidental that rowling named the position in quidditch seeker like it's 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 a microcosm for the the his role in quidditch is a microcosm for his role in this conflict mm-hmm. it's so it's it's really interesting that you bring this up and i think that talking about it in terms of in deeper terms with the hallows in mind um if you think about others who have sought the hallows and and seeking the hallows is a word that is used frequently throughout this book um but for the most part people who have sought the hallows are attempting to conquer death and harry isn't really using the hallows for that purpose um he might be trying to understand death better. Um, he might be, you know, attempting to use them to um, to defeat Voldemort, but he's not actually trying to use them to conquer death. And so I guess for, for other people seeking the Hallows, it is about the end result, and Harry gets much more out of the journey of, of looking for them. Which is really cool to me. It's not about the destination, it's about the <laughs> And I mean, journey. that's almost a parallel to Sorcerer's Stone, too, when the whole reason he's able to yeah. get the stone is because he wants to yes. find it but not use it. Yeah. That makes me feel... Yeah. Thank you for saying that, Emily, because that makes me feel a little bit better about the the uh, uh, Elder Wand being a total deus ex machina. <laughs> it feels a little <laughs> bit less of a deus ex machina when paralleled with the sorcerer's stone. Well, you're welcome. I'd say. Yeah, thank you. That fixed that a little bit for me. (laughs) Unpacking all of this together. There we go. That's why we're here. (laughs) (laughs) And speaking of the journey, just to kind of round the chapter out, um, obviously after all this, she spends like a whole page 
going through, okay, here's what's happening, but Harry just wants two people. And all this is happening, and Harry just wants two people. And all this is happening, and Harry just wants two people. <laughs> like, she mentions it several times, and I think it's very sweet that um, it's so focused on that he just wants Ron and Hermione. I think it's fascinating, too, that he is not, you know, wanting to go off on his own. Um, I think mm. that that... Yeah. That subverts expectations in and of itself that, you know, if 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 I was in that situation, I think that's what I would want, is to have a few minutes to myself. But he doesn't want that. He just wants the people who he can be totally open and raw with. Well, he says, too, he says they've been with him so long, they've stuck with him so long, they deserve a full explanation. Right. I mean, yeah, this is just as much their victory just, as his, you know? <sighs> yeah. It's just lovely. Well, the fact that he I like... cares about that oh. enough, he cares about giving them the closure, um, and, you know, immediately. Like, he could have, he yeah. could have talked to them later. He could have gone and took a nap and then filled them in. Um, <laughs> but it's important. Had a sandwich. <laughs> yeah, that's what it's I would have done. It's important to him <laughs> to fill them in right away. Mm-hmm. And as they go to fill in... Our, our last scene in Harry's actual story, right, um, takes place in Dumbledore's office. After Luna, and... as somebody during my live reading said, was the real MVP. <laughs> 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 Ooh, a blimmering humdinger. <laughs> like, okay, Luna. Yep, Luna's, um, Luna's exit was pretty fabulous. Yes, yes. Um, but I think it's just, it's... It feels right that when Harry walks into the office, we see almost the beginnings of some, well, obviously he has some, but like we actually see Harry's PTSD kind of kick in here Mm -hmm. um, because he opens the door and all of the portraits start cheering and applauding. And his first reaction is the Death Eaters are back. Voldemort's back. We're all going to lose. You know, (laughs) like he freaks out. And I think it's something a lot of people forget is that Harry is traumatized by everything that's happened to him. And that's not going to go away. Even though he's when he spent his entire life kind of like tensed up, like, you know, ready to ready to protect himself and the people that he loves almost at any second. I mean, not quite, but like kind of, um, and he doesn't really have to feel that way anymore. And, he he has it like his brain hasn't transitioned into okay you can relax like it's over it's okay and i wonder if his brain ever that's... will transition i mean he's been through quite a lot <laughs> it's why i love cursed child because it reminds us that no it doesn't mm. <laughs> that even if things have calmed down for a while something could trigger mm-hmm. it again See, I and think, I think they show that very well. I think that's the logic of jumping 19 years ahead, regardless of how you feel about jumping 19 years for the epilogue, is that, and Rowling has expressed, and this is this is a debate that really you we should save for re-examining the epilogue, <laughs> but I'll just say here that the, the jump in the 19 years, to me, makes sense because she, her end goal was to leave Harry happy. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's not to say that there wouldn't be conflict in his life, but that her goal was to leave Harry with the family that he never had and be happy, which is to some people not 
good enough. And I know, like, my favorite person to reference, Lindsay Ellis, the nostalgia chick, has said that's why she prefers Lord of the Rings over Harry Potter. But I don't really feel that that's a fair comparison because Lord of the Rings and Harry Potter have different goals with their characters mm-hmm. by the end of their mm-hmm. books. Um, so, and I mean, that's pers- that part, of, part of that's personal preference. But I think that's why she does the jump to 19 years. Because time heals... Maybe not all wounds, but many wounds. And, you know, healing healing is a process. And so I think that's why she does the 19-year jump, because we could spend that time looking at that. But Ro- even in Rowling's extra-canonical stuff that she said in interviews immediately after the book's publication, it's all like sunshine and rainbows um, <laughs> in the immediate aftermath, because I don't think she has an interest in focusing on adding more conflict into this story. Um, like it seems very done with, she seems very done with that. Yes. Which is part of the reason, and I've said this before, and we don't have to dwell on this, but part of the reason why I say Cursed Child isn't actually Harry's story at all. That it's mm. Albus's story. And Harry obviously is a big influence in that, but mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. it's not Harry's. I, I agree with you on that. Okay. <laughs> on that, on, on, on that, we, <laughs> and that, that leaves us. On that, that we can leaves agree. Us at, yes, that leaves us at the end of the chapter. But one big thing I wanted to talk about. Um, I don't know, readers, if any of you noticed this before. I noticed this about a couple months ago, actually. Um, this chapter is called "The Flaw in the Plan." And yet no one says anything about, like, no one uses that phrase. And most of the chapters are called something that, like, makes sense, you know? Uh, like, it's an object that's directly referenced in that chapter, or it's something somebody says in that chapter, you know? Um, but no one says that anything in this chapter. And I talked about this a little bit on episode 241, And I think what the kind of obvious answer is, is, oh, the flaw in the plan is that Dumbledore misjudged Draco's fear and that Draco would disarm him. And so the flaw in the plan is that Draco had the Elder Wand and Harry won it back, right? Um, Mm. But I talked about this on 241. When When you think about when this phrase is used, it's used at the end of Order of the Phoenix... Um, in the Lost Prophecy chapter, when Dumbledore is talking to Harry about his plan and what he's been doing all this time. And he says his flaw is how much he cares for Harry. And thinking about it all in context and how it seems like everything that gets explained in this chapter, every plan that got ruined, it was ruined somehow by emotion and love and caring about others and i think that's kind of beautiful that it's the flaw in the plan right the perfect system has this flaw and yet that flaw is one of the biggest themes of the entire series oh yeah love love is kind yeah kind of wanted to end with the discussion of what what the flaw is i think you're totally right like i think that's exactly the point that Rowling's getting across that she's been trying to get across this whole series that love love is complicated as an emotion and a concept and every book deals with that to some degree 
Yeah, and I think there were multiple flaws or even multiple ways to interpret what the flaw might have been. Yes, I agree on the surface mm-hmm. that like the Elder Wand, the Master of the Elder Wand situation is sort of the the technical flaw. But then there's all these points along the way where love and emotion and kind of these uncontrollable outside forces get in the way. So you can be as cold and calculated as you want, which Voldemort tries to do, but you can never control for how other people are going to react or what emotions they're going to feel or how strongly love can kind of change the trajectory of whatever your well-laid plan might have been. Well, and there's also, you know, the the flaw in Voldemort's plan at the beginning of all of this was underestimating Lily's love for Harry. And his flaw, you know, here at the end is he underestimates, you know, how much Harry, how far Harry will go to protect uh, everybody. Um, and... Over and over again, he tries to diminish what Harry is doing to to save everybody. And all of that is just, we see right through it. And we can tell that it's just thinly veiled attempts at, um, at trying to bring Harry down. Isn't it interesting to, to associate the word flaw with love? But in a positive way, mm-hmm. like to to give the reader that understanding that love is like to, to associate it with the word flaw, because love is so built up as a positive concept in Harry Potter. But it can also be a concept that has downsides or that I think in terms of the the the, the, the these three main characters we're talking about, Dumbledore, Harry and Voldemort and their how they behave based on the flaw is that Voldemort sees love. Voldemort sees love as a flaw in a way that it makes, it, it ruins a perfectly orderly system of good and bad. Um, Dumbledore sees it as a flaw in that it makes people unpredictable mm-hmm. um, mm. and complicated and they don't follow a plan. And in some ways that ties Voldemort and Dumbledore together and both in that they see love is a flaw in that it messes up plans and that Harry perhaps more so than both Dumbledore and Voldemort understands that love is a positive flaw um that can that will win the day that it's that the nature of unpredictability is valuable because Voldemort is predictable and Harry knows exactly what he's going to do and Dumbledore knows exactly what Voldemort's going to do but Voldemort didn't figure this part of the plan out because it wasn't a part of it well and we're also seeing a major theme of the books is that plans are inherently fallible and that mm. a lot of the big plot points throughout the seven books are based upon things that were never planned to happen. You know, um, Snape overhearing the prophecy, but only half of it. And um, Harry not dying when he was supposed to. 
and again here, Harry not dying when he was supposed to, and, um, it, you know, a lot of it is just, whoops, things didn't work out like they were supposed to, <laughs> and, you know, it, it ends up benefiting the, the, the person or group who can adapt to that more easily. Mm-hmm. It's a great circle back, again, to Sorcerer's Stone, where we as a reader, and I think we're meant to, and Rowling even kind of confirmed this farther down with, with Order of the Phoenix and, and Deathly Hallows, that there's this clandestine kind of thing with the third floor corridor that Dumbledore kind of knows the trio's going to go down there, and he's... Like, wanting him to? Disturbingly... Oh, yeah, okay with it. Like, he's just like, do it. I dare you. <laughs> he gives and a, they do. He gives the invisibility cloak back, like, just in case yeah. you need this, you know, when you go yeah. do the thing that I'm hoping you're going to go do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, the, and that, and as Dumbledore says in, I believe, in book five to Harry, that despite that that all kind of went according to plan, even that early... The bump in the road was he was just like, oh, shoot, I like this kid. <laughs> like, yeah. that was the flaw from that early on. We don't find that out necessarily in book one, but we do find that in book five. And in book one, you do get this sense. We at least as readers get the sense that Dumbledore's intentionally keeping something from Harry um, because he flat out says, I can't answer that question today. Um so yeah, we, we, we get that surface level idea of fate and destiny and things are just this way that they're supposed to be going because Dumbledore is pulling the strings. And then you go to Deathly Hallows and while that's still an element of it, there's there's a big oopsies in that in that plan that changes that could have changed everything. Imagine if Harry was like a total butt instead. Dumbledore was like, eh, that's fine. Yeah, what if like, you could die? Bye. We we can get rid of him. Actually, it's probably better. Or Zachariah Smith as the chosen one. Oh my god! <laughs> it's like, yeah, the world is probably better off if you uh, just get axed in this plan. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for your service. <laughs> <gasps> oh man that's terrible <laughs> but that that man i always forget what it what an ending this chapter is you know and just so much it's just like it it's done it's done for harry and for us <laughs> harry wants a and sandwich it's just, the end I love how that's like literally the last line is, and he wondered if creature would <laughs> bring him a sandwich. A sandwich. Like, what kind of sandwich would Harry okay, want Harry. after having defeated the Dark Lord? Like, <laughs> oh dang! Like, like a just l- tracle tart between <laughs> bread. There we go. <laughs> like, I'm picturing like you know like like Scooby Doo style. Yeah. Like or sub, like get him a big like layer ten feet high. <laughs> <laughs> Creature, I bet you though, creature like did that. I bet creature just like came up and he was like, "Yes, Master Harry," and like made him like twelve sandwiches in a row. He's just like making them right next to his bed. Ron is like sitting on his like 
can I have one of those? <laughs> oh, I'm sure Harry like t- went to lay down while he waited for his sandwich, and he woke up to like 20 house elves surrounding him, each with a sandwich. Probably. <laughs> <laughs> I th- there's probably some great fan fiction out there about the immediate aftermath. <laughs> That's amazing. <laughs> And listeners, speaking of that, if you ever if you ever want more of this, not only do we have our, you know, previous chapter revisit episode, but we also have our topic episode uh, titled 19 Days Later, which uh, follows our thoughts on what may have happened in the immediate aftermath um, after the Battle of Hogwarts. That was a really fun episode. Yeah. Yeah, that was that a fun, was a great episode. That was a fun episode to do, since a lot of it was some fun theorizing based on rolling statements that came after Deathly Hallows was released. So, if you're looking for more Battle of Hogwarts on this 20th anniversary, that might be the next place for you to go. Shall we? Shall we end it here? Oh, we done. <laughs> <laughs> well. Yeah, we're we're ending. Harry's wants Harry yeah, wants let's to let him rest. <laughs> so we're gonna let him sleep. Well, I just wanna thank Emily for being here today. You were so much fun to talk to and had so many great points to share and we just loved having you on the podcast. Thank you guys so much for having me. I had a great time and I hope to come back in the future. Yeah, awesome. And hopefully we will get to chat with you in the forums in between oh definitely <laughs> what is yeah, your Emily's a pretty active commenter what is your username in the forums? uh emily very creative oh well that's <laughs> really <No>. easy <laughs> Twist. easy to find <laughs> and speaking of the future our next topic will be all about the hogwarts houses yeah i don't know anybody know anything about those things i don't know That'll be great since we've There's something about a badger and like I don't know. <laughs> well, What's we've that? talked so much about the we've done. Of course, Beth was that was her episode was uh, first episode was on sortings, and so but we're we we will the you listeners have been asking us to delve more into the specific Hogwarts houses and their traits and how that contributes to their role in the series. Um, so that should be a really fun discussion. This is an extremely uh, divisive topic in the fandom. yes yes there's so much to say about all the houses and uh so listeners if you want to be a part of that or a part of really any of our upcoming future topics there's an opportunity for you to do that by going to our website alohomorepodcast.com where you choose the be on the show tab at the top of the website make sure to thoroughly read and follow the instructions that you see on that page to send us your audition You can also visit the Topic Submit page to tell us what you'd like to hear us talk about. Uh, Chapters we select and topics we select are based on uh, what you, the listeners, uh, tell us you want to hear about again. Uh, So make sure and submit those topics because I literally, the the other, my fellow hosts can vouch for, for me on this one. I literally have a document where I tally the votes for topics. It's the most amazing thing. <laughs> yes, it's beautiful. It's so organized. It's beautiful and it's based on what you, the listeners, contributed. And you guys have some great ideas so to bump up those votes. You never know what somebody else voted for. Uh, so keep bumping up those votes with your topic submissions. And if you want to be on the show, all you really need is a microphone and a pair of headphones. And if you're chosen to guest host, we will walk you through the rest of the process, including getting you a program, to, a free program to download, to record your sound, to do a test for your sound, and to get you all prepped for the episode. 
And if you just want to keep in contact with us, you can get a hold of us on Twitter at AlohomoreMN, at Facebook.com slash Open the Dumbledore, on our lovely website, AlohomorePodcast.com, and check out our YouTube channel, YouTube.com slash AlohomoreMN, and we just added some new videos, so go watch those, because those are fun. Or you can email us at AlohomorePodcast at gmail.com. And just another reminder to go and check out our Patreon. That's patreon.com slash alohomora. And again, huge thanks to David Reynard for sponsoring this episode. We appreciate you, David. Yay! And again, you can sponsor <laughs> us for as low as $1 a month. And be sure to check out our um, higher tiers for things like our Facebook group, Dumbledore's Office, t-shirts and decals and chapter readings and... All sorts of fun happening over there. And with that, we're we're gonna follow Harry to bed and Oh my sandwiches. god, I can't wait for bed. Because that sounds amazing. <laughs> Me too. I can't wait for sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Allison Sigurd. I'm Beth Warsaw. And I'm Michael Harley. Thank you for listening to episode two forty five of Aloha Mora. Open the Woo! Death Eaters! Oh. Dumbledore.